0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Special Ed Rising, No Parent Left Behind. I'm your host, Mark Ingracia, and I have been an active member in the field of special education for 35 years as a classroom teacher, tutor, parent trainer, consultant, and advocate. Thank you so much for joining me. This is a podcast for parents and caregivers of children along the spectrum of disabilities as an information hub and promoter for the advancement of people with disabilities in all areas of life. So if you're interested in learning about topics from the world of exceptional needs, educational services, health and wellness, fitness, nutrition for you and your child, and more, this is the place for you. If you like the show, please subscribe, like, comment, and tell your friends about it. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Diana Pastora Carson. Diana has been an elementary educator for over 30 years, a college educator, consultant, and coach on diversity as it relates to disability and is the author of several articles and books, including Beyond Awareness, Bringing Disability into Diversity Work in K-12 Schools and Communities, and the children's book, Ed Roberts, Champion of Disability Rights. She served two terms on the Board of Directors of Disability Rights California, and currently serves as a board member of Disability Voices United. Diana credits her passion for this work to her brother, Joaquin, who endured years of segregated schooling and subsequent institutionalization. And she takes the most pride in knowing that after many years of fighting for his release, Joaquin now lives a life of self-determination, inclusion, and quality in the community as her next-door neighbor. You can check out her website at dianapastoracarson.com. The link can be found on the resource page of my website. After the interview, stay tuned for a tip of the cap, your exceptional needs, parenting tip. Now, please join me in welcoming Diana Pastora Carson to the podcast for another win. morning, Diana. How are you?
1: Good morning, Mark. I'm well. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. And I'm excited to speak with you because you're really a really interesting person. <laughs> One of my first draws to you was the fact that you're a sibling of a person with disability. And, and I wanted to maybe talk about that a little bit. But before we get into any of these themes, maybe you can just kind of tell everyone a little bit about yourself.
1: I would be happy to. So again, my name is Diana Pastora Carson, or Diana Pastora Carson, depending on the language you're speaking. Mm -hmm. And I am a sibling to an extraordinary man named Joaquin. And I would be remiss if I did not state right up front that Joaquin has given me permission. He's given me consent and his blessing. Uh, to share our story with the world, to share his journey, our journey toward inclusion with the world. He has been present during my presentations. He has helped me in many ways um, through his multimodal communication to figure out what we want to include in presentations. And so I'm really honored that he has entrusted me with a message toward inclusion And given me the blessing to go ahead. In fact, uh, one time he was in the audience when I was giving a keynote and he said, right on, baby. (laughs) So, um, yeah, he, he, he doesn't often get to be part of the presentations due to the nature of his days and his disability. Some days are better than others, but he certainly appreciates the message that I share. Um, and and share from a place of a sibling who loves her brother and who wants the best for him and always has and who's watched him endure a lot of hardship, including segregated ed- education and subsequent institutionalization mm-hmm. for 15 years of his life. So that's a big part of my identity. I'm also, I've been an educator for more than 30 years I I was a paraprofessional, a teacher's aide in a special ed class for six years while I was going to college. And then I became a teacher and I got my master's in special education and two special education credentials and my general ed and bilingual teaching credentials. Um, my focus has always been on all students, you know, no matter what. And so I got everything I could to make sure that once I got into the classroom, that I would be equipped with the knowledge I would need to make sure that we were the most inclusive community, classroom community um, possible. And so I taught special education for a few years. And I went into general education because I I really wanted, you know, I had as a special ed teacher, I wanted my students to be in the general education classroom and and have access to the curriculum and access to relationships with their non-disabled peers and disabled peers alike you know and and I wanted the educators to see how important it was because I knew see Joaquin's Upbringing, his, his experience in a special education classroom with no alter, alternative, no option to, to escape that, um, and where he was not seen really, he was not seen as a human. He was not seen as a, a child. He was seen as a problem, and his behaviors were interpreted as a negative as opposed to a way of him communicating. And um, he was mistreated and he was abused for many years and um, ended up tragically in an institution for 15 years of his life. And so I had this, he was my why, you know, he was the reason why I, I knew that every child that walked into my classroom was never going to have to go through what he went through. And so I was committed because of that. Why? To having all of my students feel a sense of belonging, and so I think that that experience with Joaquin made me a more committed teacher towards inclusion. And and so as I was saying, I taught special education, but then, you know, as I was promoting inclusion with my peers, my colleagues, esteemed colleagues who I adore, um, some of them were having trouble understanding the concept of inclusion, and. This was shocking to me, but over time, I recognized that this is only because they've never been exposed. They've never, you know, they haven't had an opportunity to learn. And in many cases, they didn't have a why, like I had a why of Joaquin. Um, and so I decided to go into speci- uh, to general education um, so that I could demonstrate, so that I could do it, so that I could make sure that it worked. And that I could share with my peers, look, if, you, if we look at it from this perspective, it's not so daunting. And it's there are possibilities that open up for not only us as educators and administrators, but also for, um, the, more importantly, for the children, for the students, the special education students, the students with the IEPs, but also their peers. What a difference it makes in their lives. You know, being in the same classroom as somebody who's not made of the same cookie cutter. You know, somebody who is demonstrating that there is diversity in humanity and that it's not a negative thing. It can actually expand our minds and teach us things. So and then later on, I was asked to teach a community college course called Disability and Society. And, you know, I knew a lot about disabilities because I had a master's in special education. I knew a lot about disabilities, but I didn't know a lot about disability, um, the experience of being disabled and the history of disability in our culture. And so I started researching. I started doing a lot of digging because I I wanted to teach the class with integrity. I was excited about the opportunity and I started reading Autobiographies of disabled individuals. And I started looking into the field of disability studies and I started learning about the social model of disability, which says there's nothing wrong with a person who has a disability. What's wrong is the societal barriers, what's wrong is society's response to disability. So I started learning about that, which made a lot of sense to me because I didn't see Joaquin as flawed. You know, he did have a diagnosis, several, um, and autism being the main one, but in our family and in my world, he was never flawed. He was just who he was. And so, you know, the social model made sense to me. I saw that the barriers in Joaquin's life were the problem that the mindset about having him in a classroom and having to control him rather than support him was the problem Mm -hmm and um you know hindsight's 2020 20, and i wish that i you know as a second grader in school i wish that i had had that knowledge but also that power to be able to change things for him but i didn't but now as an as a teacher as an educator i was starting to see wow that social model applies to Joaquin's life and it can apply to my students in the classroom as well as opposed to Continuing to focus on the medical model, a deficit model that says there's something wrong with this child. There's something wrong with people with disabilities. And our goal is to fix them, to make them conform, to make them fit into our, quote unquote, our world. Instead of us looking at, you know, how do we share in everybody's world? How do we embrace total human diversity and honor that diversity and respect people's differences and dignity. So started teaching that class. And um, that really changed a lot about how I viewed my role as an educator. But also, I don't know if you're familiar with disability awareness, you know, the traditional ways that schools will do a disability awareness event and The day or the month, right? Yeah, a day or a month, and they'll do different activities. And this is this is one of my passions, actually. And I used to do that. I used to do these disability awareness days, where you know, I just like my mentors and my my college professors had taught me. I would put blindfolds on kids and say, "Now you know what it's like to be a blind person," Mm -hmm. or you know smear Vaseline on their um, glasses and say, now you know what it's like to have low vision or, you know, do sensitivity training. Now you know what it's like to be autistic or you put them in a wheelchair for a, a minute and say, now you know what it's like to have a mobility disability. And I did that with the best of intentions. But you know what, Mark? I learned something so valuable when I became a teacher teaching through the disability studies lens through the social model lens. I realize that we are doing this all the wrong way. We are making huge mistake by doing that. All we're doing is perpetuating more pity and more segregation. And we're not promoting inclusion by doing that. Mm-hmm. And let me elaborate a little bit. So if you think that you know the problem is the wheelchair, the problem is the person in the wheelchair, then you're not gonna be looking at the societal barriers that prevent that person from living an optimal life of quality, of inclusion, right? If you think that that's the problem, you're not gonna be looking for barriers on the side. You know, you're not gonna be looking at curb cuts that need to be there for that person to have access. You're not gonna be looking for the access they might need to healthcare as an adult. You know Which doctor's office can I go to and will they require that I get onto the doctor's Physical exam table in order to be examined, to, in order to help me to maintain my physical health? Are they going to perceive the chair and my disability as a barrier versus their mindset and their lack of uh, assistive technology and accommodations mm. present? If you think that autism is the sole problem and that's the only thing in your mind, and you're not looking at, wait, have we, have we, Given this person what they need in order to have access to communication, have we given them an understanding of their body and dignity to know, oh my gosh, autism is a movement disorder and I know you're not being stubborn right now. I I know you're not making a choice and giving them the benefit of the doubt when they're stuck because their body is just stuck. As opposed to blaming them and saying, you're just being defiant, you're being non-compliant and blaming them, right?
2: Yeah.
1: But being understanding. I mean, can you imagine being that person every day, which my brother was, the person who was blamed for his body getting stuck every day, the person who had no way to communicate and nobody considering that, wow, we need to look at good ways that work for this person to communicate. Right. Um, so there's so much, you know, and if you're blind, you know, are we looking at the lack of vision as the problem, or are we looking at, you know, lack of audio books, lack of, you know, audio signals in the community that tell a person where they are, lack of mobility opportunities, um, because we've designed our environments in a way that's so exclusive. And so not, conscious of people's access needs. And so when I realized that I said, Oh my gosh, we have to change what we're doing in disability awareness. We've got to go beyond awareness. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I created what I call beyond awareness um, strategies. And I do this in my, in my school that I'm now retired from, and by the way, I retired because I, I, have a disability and as i got older my disability wasn't allowing me to do as much in the same way that i did so but now i've passed that on i have a book people were telling me how do you do these these disability awareness events or these beyond awareness celebrations as i call them and i i would tell them and i get exhausted because i was always having people ask me and finally i wrote this book which is called beyond awareness bringing disability into diversity work in K-12 schools and communities. And I give all the background and why you do it the way you do it or why I do it the way I do it and why not to do it the way we used to do it. Mm -hmm. And then tips on how to get your own uh, event off the ground. And then a publisher, National Publishing Resources, Inc. I believe that's the name. I hope I got that right. They asked me to write a trifold laminated guide for educators and it's called beyond disability awareness An educators guide. And, um, so now I have, it's kind of like cheat sheet of everything I have in my book, how to do disability awareness events and what to focus on and what not to focus on. And I have a digital course that I created too for people who prefer that mode modality. Um, and it's called beyond awareness. Um, and it's, uh, yeah. So that is a passion of mine. I think that when we, when we want to do, we want to we bring about inclusion. We want to bring about belonging. And then in conjunction with that, we put together these old fashioned, outdated, founded in ableism um, events. With, we do this with a good heart, but it just has bad outcomes. It doesn't bring about the good outcomes that we need. And so students need to understand the topics of ableism. They need to understand access. Access is so critical. The, the event could be called access awareness. You know, it's just so focused on that access and um, assistive technology, inclusion and belonging, disability history, which... I don't remember learning about disability history no, when I was in school. No. There's such a rich history there, and it's so important that we know it, so we don't make the same mistakes over and over, which we are doing still. We need kids to know about disability history. So that's me in a huge nutshell. <laughs> a lot of information.
0: Well, it's it's broad, and uh, I have a lot of questions based off of it. <laughs> First off, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that you early on recognized the need for inclusion and understood what that was about. Was that learned from your experience with Joaquin? Or did you kind of come to that while you were studying uh, to be a teacher in special education? And I love the fact that you went to general education to, to kind of spread the word, which is, yeah. which, as you said, you know, the the exposure that the average person doesn't normally get because there is segregation. So not having that experience continues the negativity towards the idea and the concept disability, and we don't appreciate, and we don't give access to. Do you feel like that happened for you early on that awareness because of Joaquin, or did it come to you kind of, uh, through your studies?
1: Well, I think my parents set a really strong foundation in inclusion just by virtue of our family did everything together with Joaquin. And if Joaquin couldn't do it, then we didn't do it. We did other things as a family. Um, and that's par- probably part of my Spanish roots. My mother was born and raised in Sevilla, Spain. From She was the oldest of 12. And it's all for one and one for all, right? That's <laughs> kind of the culture. So I think that was part of it. I really hurt my heart to see my brother left out of anything. Um, because at home he was included in everything. And um, but I think that it didn't really, you know, I think as an adult, meeting more people who experience disability really solidified what that meant for me as an educator. I remember one person in my, one of my college classes in my master's program, her name is Peyton Goddard, and she's written a book, co-written a book with her mother called I Am Intelligent. And she's an adult who experiences autism, and she's non-speaking. She types to communicate. And she was a valedictorian of her, her community college, And her valedictorian speech was read by her best friend, but Peyton stood there with her, and Peyton had written it out. You know, over many months, she had written this speech out. Um, And I met her in one of my classes, and I thought, Oh my God, my brother! She's just like Joaquin. And one thing, my I give my credit, my parents so much credit. They were just the most loving parents. But one thing they didn't know is that Joaquin was competent. Joaquin was intelligent Mm -hmm. and that his diagnosis didn't need to dictate our assumptions about him. And so I started treating Joaquin with, as if I presumed competence and I treated him with dignity and respect. I like to think that I probably treated him with dignity and respect before, but I don't think that I always did. Mm -hmm. You know, what siblings do actually
0: well, well, <laughs> but, how you how you understood the disability as a as a young girl and yeah. how impacted how you related to him how you related to yourself how you related to yeah. the girl, you know
1: yeah so i think that joaquin became much more open like he started a healing process when i told him that i believed in him when I told him that I knew he was in there and and when I apologized for not knowing. It doesn't mean that autism was cured. It doesn't mean that everything was all honky-dory for the rest of our lives, but it just meant that Joaquin now had a spark of hope in his heart that somebody was going to be committed to him being able to communicate. Somebody was going to be committed to him being able to live A life of quality, an inclusive life. We grew up in the 70s and it was a different time. And autism was considered the refrigerator mother syndrome, for God's sake. You know, it was my mother was blamed. My parents were blamed for being cold parents, which they were not.
0: Have to find fault somewhere, right? Right,
1: right, right.
0: No, it's got to be a fault of something because that's how disability is looked upon. as Right.
1: Oh. It's a negative, right? Yes. And as <laughs> opposed to it's just a normal and natural part of the human experience and a valuable part of diversity. So I think that we got that it was or at least I got that it was a valuable part of diversity, um, but that it was normal and natural. I had no clue. Hmm. I had no clue. My parents had no clue. You know, my mom used to pray for God to forgive her for being a cold mother so that her son would be okay. In her mind, he wasn't okay. And, And Joaquin needed to, I mean, I just think about going through every day of your life with everybody thinking you're not okay, that there's something wrong with you. And not even considering that there's something wrong with our mindset not even considering that there's something wrong with the approaches we're taking mm-hmm. in, quote unquote, supporting that individual.
0: And too, when we were younger, those support services weren't there and that knowledge wasn't yeah. widespread. So it's easy to fall under those assumptions Oh, and accept them, right? Right. And for your mom to punish herself. There wasn't what there is now as far as the, the reach that people like yourself can have, right? Right. Getting people to maybe get some mindset. Shape. Right.
1: There's there there were, you know, my parents had valid excuses for having the mindset that they had. There was no other information out there like there was no Facebook group, there was no social media. There were not the, you know, th- the present day progressive ways of thinking about disability and about autism were not available to my family back then. But today it's a different
0: story. It sure is.
1: You know, sure. there's there are so many amazing parents, but even more important, there's so many amazing individuals who are non-speaking individuals who type to communicate, mm-hmm. who are, you know, individuals with other many other types of disabilities who are communicating about what life is like for them and what their access needs are and how we can be more inclusive? How everyone can participate in their communities, in their education, and in, in society, and not just participate because we or the non-disabled community are going to be benevolent, you know, and right. charitable, right. but because society is just always looking for how to be inclusive and how to ensure that everyone has access. Because that's just a good thing to do for everybody. Right. Everybody's going to be disabled at one point. Almost everybody's going to have a disability at some point in our lives, right?
0: And don't we all anyway? I mean, there's yeah. everybody has their thing. It may not be yeah. described as a disability, but everybody's got their, yeah. thing. you know. Yeah,
1: and sometimes right? we have temporary disabilities. You yeah. know, we so yeah. I mean, it's anxiety, just it's,
0: anxiety it's, could be con- considered a disability, right? I mean, people it absolutely is. So people have these things that they don't recognize as a disability because the person can walk, they can talk, they can do all these things, right? And the idea of being sensitive to that in each other and compassionate towards each other. And what I love when you talked at the very beginning about when, when you speak about your brother, you've asked his permission. You didn't just assume, right? Because he couldn't yeah. necessarily speak for himself. You know, yeah. you showed him that respect.
1: Yeah. I am not his voice. Right. He has his own voice and um you know if there are parents or families listening right now you know that's a really important thing to be conscious of your my goal is never to be Joaquin's voice my goal is to empower to amplify his voice i want him to have a voice and i want to share his voice to the extent possible when he cannot mm-hmm. um with his permission and it's a really important distinction yeah, I'm not speaking for him. I'm mm-hmm. speaking from my experience, but I also include his story with permission from him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's beautiful. And, and I think that parents, families, anyone, teachers even, you know, they tend to want to speak in front of the person as if the person's not even there. I mean, the lack of respect and regard for that,
2: even yeah. for
0: people on the inside who should have a little bit more knowledge and sensitivity, right? People right. in the field and it still happens. So, yeah. You know, it's really it's a big hill to climb to change the mindsets, but that's why I appreciate having you on to help spread this word because this is part of my mission too is to, you know, get people to understand there's a there's a different that the word normal doesn't apply to anything really, right? I mean, there's such so many variables. So can, mm-hmm. we, can we can we define normal as anything, right as opposed mm-hmm. to one specific type? Good
1: point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that, so thank you so much for that message, a beautiful message. And I, and I, I think parents will appreciate that. And I, Yeah, I think thanks, Mark. We spoke a lot about the sibling situation. I, you know, one question I wanted to ask is I know that siblings struggle oftentimes with getting attention, the imbalance of attention as a child. Did you ever feel that, that you were having to kind of sacrifice your parents' attention towards you or your needs necessarily for Joaquin's needs did you ever feel regret, uh, I mean, resentment about that?
1: You know, as a kid, I don't remember that. Maybe I've blocked it out. I don't know. But I, I our family dynamic is one that everybody takes care of it. Whoever has the most need gets the most attention. Okay. That's just, you know, it's like you don't put a Band-Aid on somebody who doesn't have an owie kind of is what I used to tell my kindergartners, right? If, right. If you want a Band-Aid, but you don't need a Band-Aid, sweetie, right? <laughs> so it's kind of that. I think more it came about like not resentment, but an awareness of, wow, this is really hard. And I need to start establishing boundaries for my life and myself um, as an adult, you know, like in my forties, I started Once we got Joaquin out of an institution, because that's part of the story, the the end of the wonderful story, um, tragic story. But the wonderful ending is that Joaquin lived in an institution for a total of 15 years as an adult. And we went to court for three years to get him out. Mm -hmm. We had to fight to get him out of the institution. But now he lives on my property. We renovated a barn on the property to be Joaquin's home. He has a home and he has 24 hour staff. Um, And, you know, it's amazing. He's been here for 12 years and people said it couldn't be done. The, the, the state said during the court process that he was a danger to himself and others and that he belonged in the institution, but he's home and he has access. Access is that key word. He has access to his family now instead of being two hours away in this human warehouse. He has access to his own clothing. He has access to food choices. He has access to neighbors who love him, who bring him brownies every so often and stop by and give him a high five. He has access to a bike, that he gets to ride. He has access to walks whenever he wants them, showers whenever he wants them. He can go to bed whenever he wants to. He has access to work that's meaningful for him. He goes out to public parks and beaches, picks up trash, which is his favorite thing in the world to do. It's not because I assigned him that, just be clear. (laughs) It's not because that's the only expectation of him, but he loves picking up trash. Um, he has access to friendship he has access to quality staff that he gets to choose and he gets to train um so and having him as my neighbor back to your question you know and me having to set boundaries there are times when we're short on staff somebody's running late or somebody um doesn't show up or uh, and i'm the one because i'm the closest one i just live up the driveway from him in my house you know I'm the one that gets to put my life on hold and things that I needed to do so that I can cover. And that starts, you know, I start thinking, well, why is that happening though? I don't let it sit there. I think what's wrong with our system? What access is Joaquin being denied? Well, guess what? His staff are not paid a livable wage. And so,
0: right, exactly. You
1: know, so- we our, our culture does not value support workers. The way that we need to, the turnover is high, you know, the education, the, the, the training is, is limited. Mm -hmm. We are very fortunate. We have three people on our staff who've been with Joaquin for the entire 12 years, Wow, three people. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And they started out just making a few dollars over minimum wage and still currently make a few dollars over minimum wage. And, and so I think, you know, I do get resentful. But I get resentful, not of Joaquin, because none of this is his fault. This is societal neglect. And I know that my situation, my story is very different. I mean, I had a loving family who my mom got to stay at home and take care of us and take care of our home. My father was in the Navy, and he was an extraordinary dad. And we had so much love and so much commitment from my parents and i know that there are homes where there's you know drug or alcohol abuse or there's abuse and neglect of children or parents are so stressed out with their own mental health issues that they don't know how to give attention to their other children their non-disabled children so when i say that you know i don't i don't remember that i'm not i'm not intending to be flip, flippant i'm not intending to discount anybody else's reality
0: it's known that it's diff- it can be challenging.
1: Yeah, it sure. can be. It can be. But I always look at it and I encourage siblings to look at it. Well, what was missing in terms of access for your family? Mm-hmm. What was missing for your parents to live a healthy, happy existence? What was available to your sibling yeah. in terms of uh, programs or care or services that would have supported them? What was missing in terms of support for you as a sibling who was maybe experiencing your own mental health crisis or issues? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't look at, I, I, I would encourage people to not blame the sibling because that doesn't help the situation. I would encourage uh, siblings and parents to never blame the individual with a disability, but look at how can you put that frustration, turn it into action. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you know, for Joaquin, that's what we continuously do. I'm always in action, you know, whether it was fighting for him to get out of the institution or now fighting for um, durable accommodations in the case of emergencies. We found out, and this is a little off topic, but it's it's applicable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Once Joaquin was home and we live in a rural area where there's a lot of brush and we've had in 2020, we had two wildfires and we had to evacuate. During the pandemic when no public restrooms are open and we had nowhere to take Joaquin, Mm -hmm. Joaquin's house is customized. It's, it's custom built and it's durable. There's nothing he can break. There's nothing he can hurt himself on when he's having a bad day. Mm -hmm. So his environment, he has access to safety in his environment. But if we go to a hotel, he doesn't have access to safety. And if we go to, Uh, an evacuation site, he doesn't have access to safety. Mm -hmm. And so I realized in that critical situation, wow, we have nowhere to go. And that's when I start getting really resentful. We had no place to take my brother Mm -hmm. and nobody in the social services system out here, which is called the regional center system in California, nobody had any answers for us. And, And so I'm working now with and hoping to work with people in the hotel industry. You know, if every hotel had one, at least one durably accessible room
2: mm-hmm. for
1: individuals like Joaquin or families with lots of kids, you know, going to Disneyland or just if you, we could have rented or, or even a room that, you know, it's decorated with murals instead of frames it, right. it, and it has. Maybe a television or a screen that comes out of the ceiling or that doesn't even have or has a TV that can be removed so that, you know, it can't be broken Broken Um, or or lamps that can be removed. As long as there's a room that is durable or can be made to be durable in a pinch Mm -hmm. and that the hotel staff would be flexible enough to let us remove the carpet, to let us remove the lamps, remove anything that's breakable. That would be a huge win. That would create access for us in an emergency situation, which we don't have right now.
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, these are things that you just don't think about, right? Until the situation up, right? You're not thinking about it. You just take care of your home. You've accommodated him beautifully. And so would you say that's part of your work towards inclusive instructional strategies and accommodations out, not just in the educational world? But out. Well,
1: absolutely. Well, I do public speaking. I do keynote speeches when I tell the story of, it's called a walk with Joaquin, the journey to inclusion. So I do that, but I've also been frequently asked to do workshops for educators on inclusive instructional strategies and accommodations in the classroom. And with that, yeah, I do a little bit of, you know, um, how what does the environment look like? and is the environment accessible to that individual student? Um, but I also talk about how we can engage students more through using interactive graphic organizers and how uh, our mindset can shift and how we can use more music and movement in the classroom and have our classrooms look a lot different than they, you know, did, a hundred years ago, which they're very similar still to how they looked a hundred years ago. You know, the rows of chairs facing the front and everybody's expected to sit quietly with their crisscross applesauce hands in your lap kind right. of a thing, right?
0: We need flexibility yeah. in the classroom and we need right we need teachers to be able to be flexible, administrators to be able to be flexible.
1: So to answer your question, I mean, it's uh, the durable accommodations uh, has been kind of a campaign I'm on separate of the Inclusive instructional strategies and accommodations, but really the bottom line—it's—they're uh, both about inclusion.
2: Yeah, right. How
1: inclusive can we get,
0: mm-hmm. right, yes. in
1: in education and out in the community?
0: I want to encourage people to go back, go to YouTube, and find your TED Talk because you you have your walk with Joaquin presentation there, uh, TED Talk San Diego, I believe it was.
1: It was at San Diego State University. Yeah, TEDx talk I did. Yeah,
0: really inspiring and beautifully presented and people get to see Joaquin and you get to see what I loved was his, you know, when you speak about his, his ability, right. As a, as an independent individual, when he found out that he was going to be getting out he, of the institution, he completely understood what that meant. Yep. You had been fighting you, You had been informed. It was obvious you had informed him. You didn't see the what happened prior, but it was all there in his reaction. Yeah, You're
1: talking about the video in I within mean, the he, TED talk. He, yeah,
0: exactly. And yeah,
1: so it was it was the day that we got the the word from the judge that said when he was going to get to come home. And he was at the institution and I was there with him and I he didn't want to go to the meeting. He was too nervous. And so when I got out of the meeting, I was filming him and I said, you get to come home on November, November 4th. And, um, that was 2011 and he, you, you could see him. I hope that, I hope that your listeners do watch the Ted talk. You just get to see, he understood every single word I said, and he, he proceeded to, to voice his favorite phrases. Um, and he said, I like steak. I want steak. I like steak. And I guess you'll want to know what steak means, right?
2: Would like yeah. to ask that question.
1: Yes. So, so, steak. Well, when Joaquin was in the institution, when we started the fight for three years, at the beginning of the three years, my mom was trying to encourage him with her thick Spanish accent. She said, Joaquinito, when you come home, what do you want mommy to make you for dinner? And he said, steak. Now, Joaquin speaks in metaphors, so his words aren't always exactly what he's meaning to say, but he said steak. And so we said, oh, okay. well, that makes sense. You want steak. So when you get home, you're going to get steak for three freaking years. We kept promising him steak. (laughs) And when he came home, he got steak. But but for that three years, he kept saying, I want steak. I like steak. Steak is coming. Steak is coming. And steak is coming is the motto of his team. They have t-shirts that say steak is coming. It's, (laughs) it's like a big deal in our world. Steak is coming is the phrase. Um, so that day when, when I told him he was coming home on, on November 4th, he, uh, he, I like steak. I want steak. And he had a big smile, big smile. Well, turns out once he had steak for a few days, once he was home, we got that. It wasn't actually the steak He kept saying steak is good. We would be out walking and he'd be looking at birds and he'd say, steak is good. I like steak. He would be riding his bike. I like steak. He would be steak was Joaquin's metaphor for life quality. Steak was his metaphor for a life that he lived, a self-determined life. That's what he wanted, a self-directed life. And so, yeah, that's that's steak.
0: I love that. I'm I'm I don't eat meat, but that kind of steak, that's the kind of steak I can wrap my mind around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I love how, you know, he understood the implications of what you were telling him immediately. So, there we have this perfect example of assuming that people with disabilities, people with neurodivergent disabilities can't comprehend and can't live a full life. Because they can't interact with the world the way we think they should be able to interact with the world. Yet there it was, as anybody who would be happy to be being let out of any place that was undesirable to them it was the same reaction, same understanding. Yeah, and that's what I want people to see because I think that's a great lesson right there.
1: Presumption of competence is so transformational. They it. If we didn't presume Joaquin's competence, he would still be in the institution. Right. And when we don't presume competence of our students or our children, we institutionalize them in a different way. We, the probability of them staying stuck in special education classrooms that are, and not having opportunities for inclusion are so much higher when we don't presume competence.
0: I wanted to actually ask you how you define institutionalization today. And it, and it doesn't have to be, obviously, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about uh, brick and mortar, but really, you're talking about institutionalization of the mind as well. Uh, yeah,
1: it's our mindset. The one when I talked about the social model versus the medical model, mm-hmm. you know, we institutionalize people, we judge people, whether it be based on disability or other differences, things that we perceive as too different to belong, too different to be right, whether it's political, whether it's gender, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's religion, whatever. (laughs) We institutionalize people. Mm -hmm. We compartmentalize people, and we make it mean something. And when we do that, we decrease the opportunities for people to live together with steak, you know, with life quality present for them. Right. And so I think it's really important for parents and siblings and professionals to know that, you know, your mindset has a direct impact on the life of the person that you love, or that you're supposed to be supporting instead of trying to control um, the person that, You're not supposed to be judging, but you're supposed to be learning from. Mm -hmm. I truly believe, Mark, that every everybody is in our life to teach us something. And I know that sometimes certain individuals, whether it's your child or your mother-in-law, you know, like, you know, they might be hard, but they're there to teach us something. Yeah. So I I would just encourage people to open up our minds to what am I supposed to learn through this? What is this person here to teach me?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And that, <clears throat> that transitions perfectly into the question I want to ask the gen, when you were speak when you were teaching gen ed, you had these students who were neurotypical students. How did that, how did your message come across and what was their response to it? And how did that change them?
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love this question. Oh, well, I mean, there's so much to talk about. I
0: go
2: for it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, well, the, my last several years of teaching was kindergarten, which is what I, I thought that I would never love anything, any grade level more than third grade, because that was my favorite grade of all time. And then I got to teach kindergarten and I asked my principal, I said, is this a punishment? <laughs> why, why? I just was so like, why am I moving to kindergarten? This is terrible. But um, I I ended up loving kindergarten. I it's I, It's just the best.
0: It's an amazing age. It is. It is,
1: it is. And I think that students learn from the modeling of their teachers. However, teachers respond to a student who may be struggling, whether it be academically or behaviorally, communicatively, um, Students learn, the non-disabled students learn from their teacher how they should be responding. If the teacher does not presume competence, if the teacher does not facilitate dignity and respect, then the students in the class won't. So my students were always amazing because they had the best modeling. You know, I believed in every one of them Um, and, and everything that I did or said spoke to that presumption of competence. And so I had, oh my gosh, my students I remember I had a little boy named Alex in my class who reminded me very much of Joaquin. and when Alex you know he didn't he didn't have uh, spoken word abilities at that point and I don't I don't believe that he does to this day and that was many years ago. However, he was smart, you know he was competent. And I I spoke to him just like I did everybody else and gave him the support that he needed. I had a yes, no app on my phone. And if I asked a question, a yes, no question, I always tried to do yes, no questions with him because that was where he was at. And I would support him and he would point to it and it would say yes and it would say no if he touched the screen. And the students couldn't wait to hear what does Alex think about this, you know, the vote, the class vote that we're having on whether or not the little red hen should share her cake with the lazy dog and the cat and the, you know, the I forget what the other animal the, and the duck. And, then, you know, oh my God, he said we shouldn't share it. We shouldn't share the cake. She shouldn't share the cake. So that I love that. Um but also with Alex, I remember one day I was out. I had a doctor appointment and I had a substitute teacher. And um, one of my parents came in to take a class picture of the whole class. She was going to put it in a, a, a beautiful album that she created for me for the end of the school year as a gift.
2: Right, so right.
1: this is the story I heard that she was about to take the class picture and the students revolted because Alex was at speech therapy. She could not take the picture until Alex got back from speech therapy because Alex belonged.
0: That's amazing. Five-year-old. Isn't it?
1: I I mean, it was so normal for my class. (laughs) Everybody belonged. Everybody belonged in our class. Well,
0: well, you taught them well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just my mindset. It's yep. not that I'm, I'm not an extraordinary teacher. I, there's so many better teachers than me out there. Um, but I just, I just had a mindset that all my kids belong. And I created a safe space where everybody could actually feel belonging. And I, That's... I protected all of them, all of them belonged. And if anybody made them feel like they didn't belong, we had a class meeting or I, up, I talked to that, the student individually, and we worked through it. Sometimes it took a whole year to get through to a student. It, sure. Everybody belongs here everybody belongs here and we need to treat people with respect.
0: And that's the key to teaching. As far as I'm concerned, it's creating that relationship, yeah. developing trust. Cause when the kids trust you, they'll do anything that you ask them to do.
2: Yeah, because absolutely.
0: You have, you have, they have, they know you have their back and then yes. you're back. And so that's, to me, it's like, what makes a good teacher, right? Can I teach you how to add? Can I teach you how to read the sentence? Well, that's a skill. Absolutely. But I don't think i th- I believe that if you don't have that other component, <clears> that component of compassion and understanding and taking that time to meet the individual and let them know that they're they're meaningful and they're significant in and of themselves, then I don't think we do our job completely. I think right. That's how we gain a child who's motivated to move forward and to learn and to to want more right you know, and hopefully the world around them, you know. To right. tribute, yeah, that's a pretty amazing story, and I love that. I'm sure you've impacted a lot of kids. That um, do any uh, of the kids come back, do they keep in touch with you at all?
1: On Facebook, I have many parent yeah. friends and some of my former students now. Yes, cool. From a long time ago. Yes yeah, yes, yeah,
0: yeah. I know that feeling, and it's pretty, it's pretty special, you know. So, congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. That's awesome. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you would like to get? The message out to people? Is there any, any, any final message that you'd like to share?
1: I think, you know, if people feel compelled to learn more, they want to hear more about this experience that I've had and the learnings that I've had, I would just encourage people to stay connected. I do want people to know that I can be found. I have a podcast called Beyond Awareness, Disability Awareness That Matters. And if they like your podcast and if they like this one here today, then they should definitely listen to my podcast as well. Absolutely. I, I bring on lots of guest speakers who I learn from, who I um, really admire. And uh, also, I, as I mentioned, I have a book, Beyond Awareness, Bringing Disability into Diversity Work in K-12 Schools and Communities. And I have the trifold um, educators' guide called Beyond Disability Awareness and Educators' Guide, and um, and and the digital course, which goes over why it's 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 called Beyond Awareness, and it's really about how to do disability awareness, what not to do, and what to do, so that you don't have regrets. If you're going to do disability awareness, please, 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 please don't do it unless you have. At, at least gotten my free resource, which I'll tell you how to get that too. You got to do it from a different perspective than what we've always done. What we've always done is not helping. It's making us just stay stuck. We're just stuck. So um, if people want my free resource called the five keys to going beyond awareness, that can be found at go slash keys. And I also have a free resource called how to talk about disability with kids or with children. I don't remember what it's called, but it's it, that's at gobeyondawareness.com slash talk. Okay. Gobeyondawareness.com slash talk. Those are free resources. And then you just, yeah, stay in touch. Yeah. Stay in yeah. touch.
0: Yeah. No, I encourage people to visit your website. I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. And uh, I encourage people, if they want to have you come speak, to get in touch with you to do that as well it's been such a pleasure. Like you said, you meet some great people and that's what has come out of this podcast. I get to meet great people like you and I learn from you and we get to spread your message.
1: Yeah. Thank uh, you so much for the work that you're doing to spread the message to Mark. I uh, appreciate uh, you.
0: Thank you so much. Be well. Have a good day.
1: Take care. Bye.
0: It's time now for a Tip of the Cap, your Exceptional Needs Parenting Tip. As a new school year begins, do your best to be involved. Stay on top of administration and teachers to be sure that your child's needs and IEP goals are being met. Go to meetings and request them when you have a concern. Don't be afraid to ask questions for being labeled the difficult parent. It's your job and your right to question and hold the school accountable. This can be done in respectful and constructive ways. Always start out with your best foot forward and adjust accordingly. I want to thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me each week to hear about topics new to you or close to your heart. I hope this podcast might inspire you to face your days more confidently, stirring a greater sense of self-love, mindfulness, and outpouring of goodness and positive role modeling for your children, or remembering to attend to the areas of your own mental, physical, and if you're inclined, spiritual health, enabling you to be all you hope to be for them. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw at Audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Special Advising, and on my website, specialadrising.com. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. You can contact me directly with questions, comments, or if you're interested in parent coaching through my email, specialadvising@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or my contact pages on Facebook and my website. If you'd like to share some of your success stories with the audience, please send them to my email. Let's show the world what's possible. Also, let me know if there's anything you'd like to learn more about. And until next time, peace and keep rising.